Welcome to the latest episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. If you are a leader who is serious about building your leadership skills and transforming your organizational culture, you are in the right place. I'm Russell Stratton. And I'm Ken Cameron. Sometimes difficult conversations suck, but you need to have them. So in every episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast, we ask leaders about the most difficult conversation that they've had with their employees, coworkers, suppliers, customers, even their bosses. We ask them how the F they managed to get through those challenging moments so that you can learn from their successes and perhaps also from their missteps, all so that you can become a better leader. In this episode, we need to effing talk to Jerry Dugan in Dallas, Texas. Jerry has been a leader in multiple settings, from combat zones as a medic in the U.S. Army to corporate offices, learning the ins and outs for building teams and trust through servant leadership. Jerry is the CEO and senior consultant of BTR Impact, a consulting and training company focused on helping leaders define success on their own terms so they can live fulfilled, meaningful lives with impact and not lose their faith, their families, or their health. He is also the host and producer of Beyond the Rut podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Jerry. It's nice to speak to you. Russell, it's great to be here. Ken, great to be here. Well, and it's great to have you here. I'm really excited to have you joining us from from uh, Texas, or as I like to call it, the Alberta of the South. It's, <laughs> yes. uh, there's such a similarity between our two regions and between our two cities, in fact. You're in Dallas uh, at the oil center of, of the southern U.S., and we're in Calgary, the oil center of uh, Canada. So there's a lot of similarities between us, and there seems to be a lot of similarities in our work. So I want to dive right into that. And I'd like to kind of kick off by the standard question we often ask all of our guests is, what do you do and why should anyone keep effing listening? Nice. Take it away, Jerry. (laughs) So I just recently started my own business called BTR Impact, which uh, is aimed at helping organizations build leaders to be servant leaders, uh, but also to help those same leaders really look at life as a whole. How do I bring my whole self into the work I do? And also build this culture where I'm supporting the whole person at work. And then by doing that, I live a more fulfilled life. Um, I get to be engaged in my family. And when I'm on my deathbed, a little morbid, maybe it's the army that did this to me. Uh, but, um, you know, nobody on their deathbed says, man, I wish I went to one more meeting. Or I wish I got those TPS report cover sheets correct. You know, whatever it is. Nobody wishes that. They'd rather have been with their family for a little bit longer. Uh, gone to that one baseball game they missed or soccer match or football match, uh, if we're saying it correctly, I guess. Uh, and, and so that's what I do on the BTR Impact side. And then the Beyond the Rut side, the podcast, takes it down to the individual level. So how do you live that life where you feel like it was worth living in the areas of your faith, your family, your fitness, your finances, and just your outlook on future possibility. That's wonderful, Jerry. And it's nice to hear you talking about helping leaders be their authentic self. That's something that our previous guests have talked about. How do we get people to be authentic and bring their whole self to work and not just, you know, the the part they think, the part they should be playing? So can I ask you with that, what, what made you get into this? You've been in the military, so perhaps you want to tell us a little bit about your time in the military and how you transitioned that into this leadership role that you were taking with your company. So uh, how did that all pan out? A, a little bit of a slumdog, slumdog millionaire story, but not as bad, I guess. Uh, so I was a very bad pre-medical student when I was an undergraduate at University of the Pacific. Uh, So, you know, you want your doctors to do really well in school. You know, 4.0 GPA, they score really well on the MCAT, those kinds of things. I barely scraped by a 2.0 GPA. It was like a 2.1. And I think that's because my faculty advisor used some uh, new rules in place and said, you know what, these are going to apply to Jerry so he can graduate and get out of here because I know he's out of money. He doesn't want to be a doctor anyway. He, he doesn't know he doesn't want to be a doctor, but I know because he tutors the guys who pass his classes, yet he can't pass the class. So he's, so, he's self-sabotaging. So that, that's something my faculty advisor recognized. Uh, so from there, I, I still thought I wanted to be a doctor and I knew I needed medical experience. I knew I needed to be able to prove myself academically, but I was out of money. And you know who could, who could give me the training, let me travel the world, and help me get the college money needed. 
It was the U.S. Army. So uh, I did the one thing my dad said not to do. I enlisted in the Army. So I didn't even go in as an officer. I went in as an enlisted soldier. Uh, and then I told my dad all about it. I was like, hey, dad, guess what I just did? And it's over the phone. And he's like, what? I joined the Army. Dead silence. <laughs> it just It's one of the few times I made him speechless in his whole life. And he was like, are you going in as an officer at least? No. I'm going in enlisted just like you did. And he never, ever said he was disappointed in me ever in his life. But the silence kind of said, son, that was a dumb decision. <laughs> it was just, it was there, you know, because he was enlisted in the army for 20 years. And that was his one piece of advice to me was don't go in the army unless you go in as an officer. Um, so I joined the army as a medic. I went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma to do basic training. Uh, the army, I guess, thought that would be a funny joke because that's where I was born. So as we're filling out paperwork, get to that little section that says birthplace, and I'm putting Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And the drill sergeants thought I was playing around or not paying attention. I did a lot of push-ups because of that. And I had to like carry my my ID card with me just to prove to the drill sergeants I really was born there. And then they realized, oh, this is some cruel joke, you know. When you're finished with your push-ups, get up and thank your recruiter. And, and so, yeah, that was that was basic training. Uh, I got picked a lot to be the student leader for my platoon. Uh, so you had your drill sergeants, and then they they really tried to implement this culture of leadership early on. And you know, how do you lead your your team of sixty five people? How do you stay uh, in charge of four different squads with about fifteen sixteen people in each one? And so you start to, le- to learn. The, the structure of military leadership and hierarchy, you start to learn how to take care of yourself so you can take care of others. Uh, you start to, you know, look at things like hypocrisy, that, that leadership is not um, something that gives you a lot of privilege that you lord over people. Like that leadership truly is, you make sure all these people come home with you. So it's not rank has its privilege, it's rank has its responsibilities kind of thing. Uh, so I got fired from that role about three or four times during basic training. Nine weeks. I think I was platoon guide more than anybody else. Uh, and it just We wound up getting everybody through a leadership role of some kind. I finished basic training. I go on to be a medic, uh, to go to training to be a medic. And my plan, I tell my battle buddy from Oklahoma, you know, same platoon we were in together. And I say, hey, Grimes, promise you, I'm not going to stand out like I did in basic training. I'm just going to lay low take my classes. We graduate in 10 weeks. We go on to our final duty stations from there. He goes, that sounds like a good deal. <laughs> good, good deal. <laughs> I, I got in trouble a lot because of you. I'm like, I know, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just, they taught me how to lead, I guess. Uh, day one of classes in the school to be a medic, um, the cadre, the, the instructors are walking up and down the aisles as the main cadre is talking to our class. And one of the cadre walks up to our table, taps on it. I look up and she says, Go to the back of the room. Take your battle buddy with you. Bring all your stuff. And so we grab our stuff and Grimes is looking at me like, what the hell did you just do? Like we just, we were just, I was like, I don't know. We're just sitting here. <laughs> and so we go to the back of the room and the rest of the cadre, they've all stopped the shark attack where they're just swarming around the classroom rows to see if anybody's sleeping and stuff. That's what I thought. And they start asking us questions. Well, specifically, they start asking me questions. You know, how do you have specialist rank already? Were you prior service? No, I, I graduated college. Uh, where did you do basic training? Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Uh, how did you, where did you graduate in the ranking? And I, and I told them I was, I was ranked number two. And they were like, why number two? Well, the other guy ran faster. <laughs> so he scored more points. He earned it. Uh, and he shoots better. He was expert. I was just one shot shy. So, okay. Where'd you go to school again? And I told them, what was your major? Uh, I was a pre-med student. And then they all looked at each other and they were like, where did you go to basic training again? Uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And then they looked at each other. One of them said, that's the guy. And now Grimes is looking at me out of the corner of his eye like, dude, <laughs> they had you pegged. You're screwed. We're both screwed. And so that's when they told me they'd like me to be the class sergeant. And my job is make sure everybody in my class graduates. Um and so we walk out of there and Grimes, he's just like, well, so much for laying low. I'm like, I, I, that was my plan. You, you saw me, my head was down. I was taking notes. They found me. Um, he's like, this, this is a stupid rank you're wearing on your collar. You had to go to college, <laughs> get promoted on the way in. I'm like, I'm sorry. They pays more. Uh, 
So for 10 weeks, I'm the class sergeant and I'm emulating what I thought was leadership, which is just yelling at people. What I started to learn was that the cadre came up with a nickname for me and it was the warden. And uh, it was because I yelled at my guys so much and they were just thinking, it's a miracle. Those guys have not taken him off to the side and kicked the crap out of him. He's just, he's borderline abusive with how he's trying to lead the team. On the flip side, they're all graduating. And that was his job. Make sure they all graduate. Make sure they study. Make sure they're passing their quizzes and their exams, that they pass all the practical pieces. Um, and, and that course wrapped up with what's called an FTX, field training exercise. And that was my first dose of reality that what I was doing up to that point wasn't really leadership. It really was living up to that nickname, The Warden. And uh, it was in the field where those challenges to fight in the woods really started to come out. And I was like, oh, wow, um, this has changed. <laughs> What's going on here? Not that I was scared of these guys, just that, you know, all of a sudden the people on my team wanted to like bash my head in and it was all finally coming out. And somebody finally took me aside and just said, hey, just, just some advice. You got to respect the dignity of every person, even if they're below you in rank or position doesn't make you better than them as a person. And I've watched you the whole course. You weren't in one of my classes, so I didn't say it to you directly. But now that we're in this FTX and I get to see you and work with you directly, that's my one piece of advice for you is as you go on in your career, always remember that the position is in a position of responsibility, not a position of you're better than somebody else. And that was that first aha moment. And, And he just started talking about, you know, serve your people, take care of their needs, make them feel safe train them, make sure they know their job, make sure they know your job so that when they go into these missions that could take their lives or take yours, they're in a position where they can step in and do what needs to get done and go home. And if you do that, they'll even go as far as they can to bring you home as well. I was like, cool. And I just sort of nodded. I didn't say cool because he was a sergeant and I didn't want to do any more push-ups. But so that was, that was just in the first three to six months of my my career in the army and just time and again all the experiences to leadership were around you know uh, leaders eat last you know simon sinek talks about that you know and, and it it's a practice you know my squad leader in germany my first unit he, he was also my buddy so off duty he was my best friend uh at work i was always calling him sergeant yes sergeant no sergeant and when we went to the chow hall he always insisted that everybody went ahead of him. And I'm trying to be his buddy. I'm like, no, you go. You always tell me to go first. He made me do push-ups in front of everybody because it was, you know, I was arguing with him. I'm like, no, you go. You're always telling us to go. You're always taking care of us. We got to take care of you. And he said, what is my name during the workday? And I was like, Sergeant. <laughs> he goes, great. Remember that. Um, you eat first. You make sure you're taken care of. I make sure you're taken care of. And, and that way I know the mission's going to be taken care of. So. That was uh, my leadership experience and exposure uh, during that time. That's such a powerful image that you referenced there. I remember reading Simon Sinek's um, uh, blurb around that book, and it so successfully communicates that sentiment. Leaders eat last really clearly illustrates that you have to put everyone else first and everyone else ahead of you. And your story, as you describe that, that journey for through university and through basic training and through the, the subsequent training that like just the different ways in which you learned that and had to learn that. And it seems like it was a lesson that you had to learn a couple of different times for it to sink in. Uh, Oh yes. Even after I became a sergeant myself, uh, I still uh, started thinking I needed to like, be the warden again. And uh, it was just that reminder of, no, you take care of the people. There was, there was a lieutenant I knew, uh, lieutenants, oh shoot, what was his last name? Uh, but anyway, it was a lieutenant. He was a tank platoon commander. So really neat guy. These guys are the guys that say death before dismount and why carry your weapon when your weapon can carry you. Very funny guys, very loyal to each other. And he knew I was interested in becoming a leader in the army. And he said, great, always remember to take care of the three M's. I was like, the three M's? They say, yeah, their they're meals, their money, and their mail. You take care of those three things and you treat them with respect. They will take care of the mission, even when the mission falls apart. 
And I was like, why is that? He goes, well, if you take care of the three meals, you're taking care of the morale because they know that they got three hot meals coming or there's, there's always going to be nutrition and water available for them. And you're making them feel safe and provided for. You want to make sure that the money is going because whether they are single or they have a family, that is the reward for them doing their job. You know, it's, uh, if they're a family member, they need that money to have zero interruptions to it because there is a wife and children on the other side that depend on that income to buy groceries, pay for bills, make the car move, all those things. And then the mail, you know, we all need that connection with each other. And that mail is their connection to reality back home because when we're on deployment, we're seeing something surreal. We're living in huts. We're in tents. We're moving in the mud. Uh, We're doing things on 24-hour operations that people back home will never understand. Uh, And it's easy to forget yourself on these missions. So that mail reconnects them back to home, reminds them of why they're doing the job in the first place, and again, boosts their morale. So those things keep them informed, keep them connected, keep them fed. And uh, from there, you just make sure they're prepared for missions, and they'll take care of the mission. That's, that's wonderful. And in listening to you talk about that, that, that Jerry, reminds me of uh, Colin Powell and one of my favorite, um, I suppose, extracts that I, I like to use on a number of workshops that I do and work with leaders is his 18 tenets of leadership, which he got from when he was time in the military and it sort of carried him through in his other public service as well. Uh, and when you were talking about being a basic training, I think he's sort of saying that he learned – most of what he needed to learn about leadership from his officer basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia, from his drill sergeant. And um, I, I, that, when you were talking there, it was just bringing the memory of his a speech I heard him give when he was talking about exactly that and this idea of, you know, you put yourself last, your, your troops are always first. You look after them first, and then you look after yourself. And one of the things that I, my father, who was also in the military, would say he noticed in, um, I suppose, civilian or corporate life, he said, is how many leaders did it the other way around? It was themselves first, first choice of, you know, first in their best, you know, best parking lot space, uh, you know, best meal, everything like that for them. Um, and the people lower down the, the ladder, got what was left and he said that you know he's found in the military that similar as you had that it was it was the other way around the best leaders that he ever served with were people that really were genuinely cared about the people that were that worked with them and were on their on their team to make sure that they got what they needed so that they could do to their job and it sort of it resonates in the corporate sector but seemed to somehow get lost on occasion so and what about that so with that in mind how did you make that switch into you know the uh, your your military career and now you've taken this into the uh, corporate world so uh yeah, talk a little bit more about your focus on the corporate work. Yes. Uh, so a lot of the, the principles still hold true in my, in my eyes, uh, that if you take care of your people, they'll take care of the mission. So what does that look like in the civilian sector? Uh, you know, I don't have to feed my people three times a day. I do need to make sure that they're compensated competitively in a way that shows I appreciate and the company appreciates the value they bring to the organization. So that, that is huge. Um, I also have to create an environment where my people can, and this goes for any leader, where they can make some mistakes. They can learn from their mistakes. There's training available. There's growth available. There's a very strong growth mindset being established. And for that to happen, you have to have a psychologically safe space where people can test ideas. They can take those risks and that any mistakes are mitigated and learned from and you know not repeated in a sense. And so you need to have that. You need to have a sense of empowerment too, uh, to your people. Uh, because, you know, they sign on, they know they've got skills, they have knowledge, they want to make a dent in the organization, they want to grow in their careers. And if we're micromanaging folks every step of the way, they get demoralized. What's the point in coming up with ideas? What's the point in solving issues if it's always going to be whatever Jerry says anyway? Um, so that is huge. You know, do my people know enough to carry on when I'm not there. Um, And then they got to be able to take care of themselves, you know, that connection to home, the male part of it, right? Uh, You know, so connect with home and, you know, 
if they need to leave early to go get the kids out of school, take you know somebody, a loved one to the doctor, take care of themselves, uh, that reminds them why they're doing the work in the first place, that they're not a, a cog in the machine, and that they're being taken care of. They, they're appreciated as a person as well as the professional. And so a lot of those concepts I learned in the military do transfer over very well in the civilian sector. And, and you see a lot of the same thing there as well, that if the leader really cares about their people, takes care of their people uh, to provide that psychologically safe space, delegates, grows them, uh, you see high levels of performance. And if the leader comes in thinking they've got to micromanage everything, that you can't really trust anyone, um, you do as I say, follow the rules or else, morale is low, turnover is high, and the cost to the organization is more than it really should be. So with your work on the on the leadership side now, you've worked in the military and you've worked in the corporate space. What do you think the biggest challenges that leaders face? And perhaps we'll look at it from the corporate side. That's where you're working now. And most of our listeners will be, will be from the corporate side. So yeah, what's the biggest challenge you think leaders face at the, at the moment? From my experience, the, the two main areas are when you become a new leader. So you're going from individual contributor to now a manager. Those are different skill sets than uh, as a manager than when you were an individual contributor. And it's interesting because it's usually our accomplishments as individual contributors that gets us noticed and then gets us promoted. But now we're shifting gears now. We're, we're having to manage interpersonal connections and dynamics. We're having to change our communication style to reach those who commu communicate differently than we do. Uh, we have to manage schedules. We got to have that balance of hitting the bottom line as well as making sure our people are taken care of. So the soft skills pieces tend to fall by the wayside. Uh, things like you know checking in on your employees. Uh, one thing I learned uh, in healthcare was it's called rounding on your employee. So depending on the number of people you have, you check in with them for about five to 10 minutes or 20 minutes uh, once a month or once a quarter, all dependent on how big your team is. And it's really connecting with them on a human level, finding out from them what works, what doesn't work, getting input from them, and then communicating back to them anything you've done to help fix the issues or get something going to fix the, the issue eventually. Um, so stoplight reports, uh, communicating with the team as a whole, having huddles, creating a vision, casting that vision to folks uh, in the military. Uh, anytime we went on a mission, we had what was called commander's intent. And that was, you know, under the guise of that, no, no plan ever survives first contact with the enemy. Uh, this is our plan. However, that's going to go out the window the moment bullets fly. So here's the intent of the mission. We want to take over a village. We want to blow up the bad guys, whatever it is. Uh, that's the intent. So when that plan goes out the window, you can restructure a plan in the moment because of the intent. And so a new leader who doesn't have a vision of how they want to lead, is just going to go through the motions and do what they think a manager is supposed to do. And they're just going to struggle. And what winds up happening is most of them quit and go back to being an independent contributor or individual contributor within 12 months. So that's kind of the first arena. How do I cast a vision, share it with my team, and build that rapport with my team and leverage them? Um, the other thing I've seen as a problem, this goes with senior or tenured leaders, is delegation. You know, and that could take years. Uh, you know, what allows a leader to spend more time connecting with people, casting their vision, finding out how people are doing, resolving those interpersonal uh, communication issues? They've got to let some things go. You know, some of those tasks and responsibilities that take up a lot of time, they just need to be handed off to somebody else who is ready to grow to the next level of their career. And I find a lot of leaders have a hard time doing that. You know, they, they feel like I've got to do this or I can't hand that off to somebody. It's, it's crappy work. It sucks. I'm not going to hand that to that guy. Why would I do that? Uh, maybe I don't want to have this guy deal with the spreadsheets for my reports. Some people love that. They love spreadsheets. They want the opportunity to prove they can do it. Do it. You know, delegation is a great way to, one, get stuff off your own plate as a leader. It's also a great way to develop the people who work with you and report to you because they're now learning new skills. They're demonstrating those skills. 
and they may have to informally lead others to get those responsibilities done. So I would say those are the two things. If you're a new leader, learning all those new skill sets, whether you're a new leader or not, delegating out to your team so they grow. You know, I'm really hearing in there a theme that you mentioned in, in you, you talked about how new individual contributors who then get promoted haven't had the leadership training. And what I really appreciated in the earlier part of the interview was when you were talking about in the military, they're training everyone to be a leader from the very first yes. day. So that if they have the opportunity, they're prepared to step forward and lead. And that's something that the corporate world can learn a lot to do a lot better is, you know, they call it uh, succession management. But what it really is, that phrase implies that it's something you do off and on, as opposed to something that is embedded within the structure of the organization. I really like the way you've described it as something that needs to be embedded within. Yeah. Oh, it has to be. Um, There was a. You know, keeping to the military theme, uh, there was a movie, uh, We Were Soldiers, with Mel Gibson. Uh, and this was a big part of how uh, Colonel Hal Moore led in real life. So there's a scene where they're doing training before they go to Vietnam. And a helicopter comes down. It lands. Uh, people jump off, and they run into the wood line, and they do their exercise. Another helicopter comes down. They jump off. Well, the third one's starting to come down. And Hal uh, says, it's too easy we got to see how these leaders are really performing. And the sergeant major's like, well, what do you have in mind? And the colonel walks right up to the next helicopter that lands, walks right up to the platoon leader, a lieutenant. He goes, bang, you're dead. Now what do you guys do? And the platoon sergeant's sitting right next to him, and he's just stunned. He's like, ah, bam, you're dead too. Now what? And then the first squad leader's like, get off the helicopter. So they all get off the helicopter, and they continue the mission without their top two leaders. So now the first squad leader has to take over the entire platoon's mission. And that was the test to see how well that lieutenant and platoon sergeant really did was, do the squad leaders really know what they're doing? And it's kind of the same thing. Like if I'm a manager and I want to take a vacation for two weeks and I really want to enjoy my vacation, the people underneath me need to know how to run that organization without me there. That's absolutely true. And yet it's something that many corporations don't take the time to do. I heard of a great example that I uh, think is worth sharing. There's a company called The Motley Fool. They're a uh, newsletter, right? Yeah, so it's it's like an online newsletter. They give you advice, investing advice. And within their organization, within their company, they have a program that they call The Fool's Errand. And every quarter, they draw the name of an employee out of a hat, and that employee wins a two-week vacation. And they must take that two-week vacation sometime in this month. And so what this essentially means is that any team can lose a key player at any point. Yes. And when that employee is granted the fool's errand, they get a two-week vacation during which they're not allowed to check in with the office. They're not allowed to check their email. They're not allowed to um, – to, uh, the other uh, team members aren't allowed to ask them questions. So each team has to learn to build in the resilience so that they can withstand the gift of the fool's errand. And it really is partly an employee reward thing, but also partly a resilience test on the part of the organization. Yeah. It's huge. I mean, if we think about any sports team that is a championship team, they have depth on their bench. Like any, like American football, any one of the quarterbacks out of the two or three quarterbacks they have could jump in and play the game. Same with the linemen, the running backs, receivers. They have depth to their bench. And in the corporate world, the teams that do really well have that kind of depth that any one person can step up into an entry-level leadership role and any of those supervisors can step up into the manager role. And does that mean some people move off laterally to other departments or other organizations? Yes. The performance, though, for that team or that department is huge. And it also frees up the manager to move up to director and so on. I think there's a great point um, for us, perhaps, to go into our intermission, Jerry, some wonderful um, thoughts that you've given us and our listeners there. So uh, we're going to take a little intermission here for a moment. When we come back from our advert break, we're going to hear about the most difficult conversation that Jerry has had to have, how he dealt with it. We'll be back in a flash. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. One of our clients wants to do the pitch for us. That client is Dean Jessen who's operations manager at Volker Stevan Highways. Dean was a guest on our podcast in episode number 36. 
And at the end of his interview, he surprised us by telling our listeners just what he thought of our work. Russ and Ken, I appreciate the work your team does with managing difficult workplace conversations. Volker Steven has had the pleasure of going through that a few times now. And I know some other parts of our companies are also engaging that with yourselves and Blue Gym. And just for the audience's information, we know in a work environment, it goes without saying that there's different views and perspectives out there. And agreements, disagreements, conflicts, etc., are going to take place. And, and what we've really benefited from, from the work your team does, is that you address these conflicts or disagreements. You work with the company, you address their specific conflicts and disagreements, and you make it a real-life setting by bringing actors and mediating and keeping that context going and the discussions going. So it prepares our leaders in Volker 7 and others in the leadership role to be ready for these conversations when they do take place. So really appreciate the work you gentlemen do as well in your team. We had no idea that Dean was going to say that, but we're really glad that he did. For years, Ken and I have been leading these workshops on how to navigate difficult workplace conversations. Because we use live actors to play your difficult employee, customer, supplier, or boss, it's as close to the real thing as you can get without having the real problematic individuals in the office with you. And let me tell you, it's a whole lot psychologically safer. If you'd like to find out more about our live workshops or our online courses, then head on over to INeedToEffingTalkToYou.com. And now, back to the episode. Welcome back to the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. We are speaking today with Jerry Dugan, CEO and Senior Consultant of BTR Impact and also host of the Beyond the Rut podcast. Awesome. I'm still here, El Wapo. Great to have you still here, Jerry. Glad you're still with us. So, you know, we when we were uh, chatting before the show started, you have a really interesting story that you wanted to share with us about the most difficult workplace conversation you had. And I, I'm just going to invite you to launch into us. Tell us, set the stage for us. Tell us what was the background of this conversation and how, um, just kind of set the stage for us about how it, how, uh, yeah. it was going to unfold. So I was leading a team of... Um, OD consultants and uh, LMS administrator. And then there's myself reported to a vice president. Uh, and, and so this was a great opportunity for me to come in and apply everything that I believed in as a leader, all the lessons I'd learned uh, and, and even had a lot of quick wins when I first came on board. Like there was an intern who had just uh, been hired on to be with us for full time. Cause I, I came in with a vacancy interviewed a bunch of folks and I just looked up and realized we've got this intern we've invested 600 hours in why are we letting her go back into the the wild and, and fend for herself when we can capitalize on 600 hours of on the job training that we've invested and have her stay with us so she did she's a rookie and we wanted to develop her uh, we actually wanted to develop a coaching model and I had a big stack of books to go through had this big thick assignment to work on and I just held onto that belief of delegation. So I turned to her and I said, hey, actually, she came to me and asked if there was anything she could do to help me. And I looked at the stack of books and I said, hey, I've got to come up with three or four sound coaching models that we need to consider for the organization. She said, great. Can you read through these books and give me your best summary of three to four sound models? Within two weeks, she had that done. And then from there, it turns out that the message had shifted and... Uh, it was all about, we need to create our own. Well, a month later, she created our own. And so here's this rookie, intern turned full-time consultant, develops our own coaching model to use in our organization. It was all the parameters met. Easy to use, easy to remember. Uh, grounded in best practices from multiple models. And I was like, yes, there we go. And I thought, this is it. We're going to win. Like, I'm going to build the team I really want. It's going to be this culture building kind of thing. And over time, I just started to realize, maybe not, that there's a high degree of micromanagement that happens above me. And so we fast forward about two and a half years, gone through a pandemic, gone through a major ERP implementation project. And one of our star players leaves us. And it's, it's the person who's like really close to the VP and the person we thought who would one day be my replacement, uh, one day, 
Uh, but she leaves. Pay raise, great opportunity. I, I knew the organization she was going to and the team she was going into, so I knew it was a move up for her as far as growth in her career. Couldn't be mad at her. I was actually very happy for her. Uh, but that was really indicative of what was going on underneath. You know, people say they don't quit their job, they quit their boss. Uh, so I had to reflect. I'm like, what did I do to not provide that growth for her? Uh, and what is it I could learn from my team to prevent anybody else from leaving? And so by the time we launched our ERP, I, I just did my rounding. But I changed the questions up and just started asking, is there anything in the job role that's a major dissatisfier for you that we could take a look at? And everybody who was still on my team, hands down, said that they felt like they were just glorified administrative help. And we're talking about three people with master's degrees, highly skilled, highly knowledgeable, sharing with me that for the last few years, all they've been trusted with was ordering supplies, ordering jackets, following up with the printer, you know, those kinds of things, checking the mail. And I was like, really? And I felt bad because I felt like I didn't keep track of those things. But I, I recall putting them on assignments. And then as I thought about it, I realized, you know, that these would get hijacked. And so my boss, we're having our weekly conversation and he asked how things are going. He knows morale's kind of low on the team. Have I learned anything from them? And I shared with him the feedback I got. And what surprised me was that every organization I've been in, They've been open to feedback. Leadership, myself, open to feedback. But this guy was livid. And he was personally hurt that I'd shared this feedback that my team felt like they were just being used as glorified administrative assistants. And I got to hear that from him every day for two hours for three weeks. And I thought, why am I having this conversation with this guy every day? And I'd even ask him, hey, this seems to really bother you. Yet I've got to challenge you, if you don't mind. You're the vice president, so I expect you to take it better than I'm taking it. But you're not. And that concerns me. That scares me a little bit. And uh, it, it closes the door for them to be able to express how they feel. And if that door closes, the trust that they have in us as their leaders will wane away. And that's my concern. So that was the first conversation I had with them. It was, it was uh, just surprising. <laughs> that it was happening. It, it was more about him and how he felt as opposed to what the team needed. And it was just this weird aha moment of what is going on here. So the leader that you were working with was the one who was hijacking these projects. You would assign something to your team members who were highly skilled people with master's degrees, and then he would come along and hijack that from them. So this is partly why he was taking this feedback so negatively and so personally, because he was yes. the one that was the root yes. cause of this, not yourself. Okay. So I want to make sure I'm clear on that. And then when you have the conversation with him, he, he actually solicited yes. the feedback from you. And then when you give him that feedback, just as he asked for, then he doesn't want to hear it. And not only does he not want to hear it, he's um, um, punishing you for having told him, having answered the question exactly. that he asked from you. Exactly. And, and on top of that, he was just finding ways to, um, I guess, paint a negative picture for the people on my team. Well, this person really doesn't have the experience. This person has a language barrier. This person just doesn't have the skill sets on the technology level. Like he had to bring them down as far as their capabilities, the worth that they brought to the team and, and point out the negatives. And I, I found myself for those three weeks having to rebuttal that and point out the positives. This is the, the accomplishment this person has had for three years. Here's the accomplishment this person has had. Here's the, the list of accomplishments this person has had. And it, it just eventually waned away. Like I, I thought he had, come to terms with it. And we eventually had a team meeting where he spoke to us and just shared with, with us the, the state of the industry in a sense. And it was just his picture of, we've always been a lean organization, a lean team. We've always been a team that's rolled our sleeves up and you know the pandemic has changed things. So that was kind of his story, the way he kind of whitewashed over it. Um, and 
what I, it, it still continued though. So I'd have an assignment for a teammate, like, Hey, you know, we got, a, we're the team that basically would go to other teams and help them with team building, help them with communication and interpersonal dynamic issues. We would coach leaders, train leaders. And here we are just internally not able to handle our own executive leader because he wasn't, he just essentially wasn't living who we were and supposed to be. Uh, so a few months. It's a bit like the doctor who can't take care of their own personal yes. health or who in, in, to some of the descriptions. Yes, exactly. So uh, could, could spout off the theories and the models really well, teach them to others, but then behind closed doors in practice, I started to realize we were not practicing it. And uh, just as time went after that initial wave of conversations uh, over those three weeks where I gave him the feedback he asked for. Uh, I just noticed that the morale just kept dropping on my team. How's your morale doing? Is you are you starting to lose your your zest for life, your zest for the work? I was, and it wasn't until things came to a head that my wife finally opened up and told me. I just thought I had to power through. You know, I've I've been a combat. You know, I've I've had people try to kill me for a living and you know, what could this job possibly do to me? to bring me down. And, and so doing my best to kind of put my shoes back on and the suit back on and go in with a happy face and, and be that positive, uplifting pe- person for the three people who reported to me, um, it was more challenging than I realized. And uh, it wasn't until later in the year, six months after that initial conversation that, um, yeah, I took a week off to go to a conference. And I just started to realize I've been on vacation for four days. And my boss has called me every single day or texted me on something that could have either talked about been talked about before I left for vacation or when I came back. But here he is bugging me every single day. Um, and at one point, there was even a late night text message to my whole team that included me. And he was asking for a report. And I'm sitting here thinking, don't respond. We had this conversation before I left uh, because I found out he had been texting my team members after working hours on the weekends asking for status updates on supply orders and projects that really could have waited and and, and reports that could have waited till the next day or the following Monday. And so I'm looking at this on a Friday night at 8 p.m. thinking, don't answer, guys, don't answer. And sure enough, one of them answered. I'm like, oh, and that was it. For the next three hours, just phone lit up between the two of them and, uh, I was like, man, and I turned to my wife. I'm like, this is going on right now. And she said, don't answer because then you get sucked into that. Um, just fix it on Monday. And sure enough, Monday came around. Boss took me to lunch. And he just has this, this conversation with me about how, again, he's noticed morale is low. He doesn't quite know what we've got going on here. And everything about his language is he's looking for somebody at fault other than himself. And I'm like, wow, we're here now. And just a, it took an hour for me to get that out of him, that uh, what he wanted was for me to be more of a micromanager, to be on top of what everybody's doing, and not really give them a chance to think about working anywhere else. I was like, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> uh, what I'll do is I'll round with everybody and see how they're doing and what's bothering them, and, and similar to what I did a few months ago, and, and find out what is the dissatisfier. And he said, that, that's a good idea. Go ahead and do that. So that was the plan for that week. Now, what wound up happening was a few days later, I had the first meeting with one of my team members just to find out how could I be a better leader? That was the, that was the way I was told to go in. How could I, Jerry, be a better leader to you over the next year? And I'd like to learn that and, and elicit that feedback from you. First person, first question I asked, she immediately cut me off and said, Jerry, it is not you. I've been saying it for months I said it back in May, it is not you. It is your boss. Because you'll give me an assignment, you'll trust me with a project or a responsibility, develop this leadership program, develop this coaching model. And then he comes in and says, hey, I don't need you to work on that. Hand that back to Jerry. I've already talked to him. He knows about this. What I need is this ordered and I need it followed up on. I need it for so-and-so uh, by the end of the week. Can you get that? that? That should be your only thing you focus on. And so 
that's what he was doing was like coming in and handing a project, a responsibility back to me, telling her he'd already talked to me about it. Now he'd come back to me and say, Hey, you know, I talked to your employee. She told me she's just overwhelmed with life, you know, raising kids, juggling a family life, coming into work, the commute and so on. Um, I don't think she's got the time to work on this project you just gave her. I think it's a good idea if you just kind of take it on and kind of massage it a bit and get it rolling forward and then maybe hand it back to her. So that was the gaslighting discovered was he's telling her one thing, telling me another, but just enough of the truth in both that we would think, oh, this is already sanctioned by Jerry. Then I I just got to suck it up and go with it. And so that comes up in this sensing session, how this type of behavior is going on. And I'm thinking, this is not acceptable. This guy's an executive. He should not lead like this. I have some standards he needs to abide by. And so I'm already like mad. Uh, We finished. It was supposed to be a 30-minute session. It wound up being two hours. She goes back to her office. We try to find the other coworker that was in the office that day, and we can't find her. And we're like, ah, where is she? Well, she eventually turns up. The two of them go for a walk. My boss swoops into my office, and he begins to tell me how he talked to this other employee. And she apologized for something she had done. I was like, the thing that she didn't do wrong, but you wanted an apology for? We talked about that. He goes, yeah, well, she, she apologized. It was, I took it. I said, thank you so much. Um, and then we just talked through some things, and, and she understands that she has to learn my style as well as yours. And I told her that she's got a future here if she chooses. And so I went ahead and I talked to her, got her feedback, and I, I re-recruited her for the organization. I said, okay, cool. Well, I'll still talk to her if that's okay. He goes, yeah, do what you want. But I already took care of it. It's like, well, she reports to me. So kind of weird that you did that. And he goes, that's ah, fine. But, you know, we got we to gotta get these guys fired up. We got to get them, like, wanting to work here again and just having a sense of, like, ownership. It's like, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, so I know I'm getting in the weeds of the conversation, but it was just, it was all these nuances, though. Because what happened is he goes back to his office. Those two come back. We had a meeting, the three of us, uh, my two employees and myself, to work on a project. I go into that office, and that second employee is crying her eyes out. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, because I know enough of her that when she cries, it's not I'm brokenhearted crying. It is I am pissed off crying. And I just said, hey, the three of us, let's let's go take one of our classrooms on the other side of the building. And, and we did, because I already knew enough that they weren't feeling safe to open up in front of him or near him. And, and I picked up on that, especially the conversation with the first employee I had. So we go to a, a classroom, we lock the doors, I put up a fake flip chart to act like we're mapping out stuff. I'm just doing this on autopilot. Don't even realize that I'm doing it. Um, but it gets everybody to feel safe enough that I find out what happened. So while I was in the office with the first employee getting her feedback, he took the second employee and berated her for two hours, made her apologize. Turns out he coerced her into the apology. So she didn't just voluntarily say, oh, I'm sorry, I did this thing the other day. He just kept bringing it up over and over and over again until she apologized. Uh, Said things like, I can never put you in front of the executive leadership because of your language issues. So it's kind of referencing her thick accent. Uh, Just a number of things of like, you've got to figure out how to work with me. Uh, You got to figure that on your own. All these other people have figured out how to work with me, but, but you haven't. I can't tell you how to work with me. You got to figure that out. And it was just like throwing it on her to understand him when in my eyes, in any other leader's eyes, it's his responsibility to bring clarity to who he is and what he wants. Um, But at the end of the two hours, he basically said to her, you got to choose, you know, do you learn to work with somebody like me or do you figure out you don't have a place here? And he offers up a fist bump and I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> like, he basically took her on this roller coaster ride um, and tore her apart. She was young, professional, uh, just a few, just a dissertation away from a PhD. So, as far as who's smart in that room, it was her. And he just took this moment to, to exert control and dominance over her. And she said, that's it. I'm done. I'm quitting. I'm not coming back. I don't think I'm going to even give you two weeks' notice, Jerry. I am not coming back to this. I don't feel safe. Um, he, he just made me feel like the worst I've ever felt. And she's like, 
and I'm, I'm a dating violence survivor. And I was like, oh crap. <laughs> like I, I just lost a star player and there was no reason for it. Um, and, and it I mean, just, that's interesting. Sorry, just to, to jump in yeah. there, Jerry, because I think our listeners in that, you know, the, the, uh, the power behind that story of, of talking about there with a, and I, I, I hesitate to use the word leader because there's nothing than what you've described of this individual that would um, meet any of the leadership criteria that we spoke about in the first part of our conversation um, today. Uh, but it seems to be, you know, they're, they're lying to people, not just the micromanaging. I think most of us yeah. have probably worked for a micromanager at times and they can be a pain in the butt, keep asking you what's going on. But, you know, you've got this lying to people about what you're actually saying. You're saying one thing to one person and something else to somebody else. You're telling lies. And then there's sort of bullying that's coming in there to, you know, berating an employee. Um, and to me, one of the worst things that a leader can do because there's that differential in the organization between the leader and the individual that they in the, the hierarchy, they're sort of don't feel they can talk back to the leader necessarily. And I know with a you know, a lot of folks that I've worked with, but they've been used to not having been able to say that. So it's like to having somebody taking advantage of that, bullying and berating an employee, lying to you, lying to them, and the micromanagement seems a virtually untenable position. Um, I sure our listeners want to know so what what happened in the end. What was the last thing? Were you do were you able to ride to the rescue and you know slay the dragon, or was there some other a noble ending that happened here that we could uh, oh, we man. look at? I'd love to say I went right into that guy's office, told him what for, and that was it. It fixed everything. Um, but after hearing from my first employee and then hearing what happened to the second one uh, in a conversation, that one took three hours, by the way. Um, I just realized I'm just emotionally drained. I can't take this guy on right now. I need the weekend to process. So, um, yeah, I just processed it. I talked it over with my wife and it was at the end of the weekend. My wife said, Jerry, there's nothing you could do to fix that guy. He's told you he's never going to change. You need to adapt to him. And I was like, he did say that during that lunch when he was trying to blame me and not. She said, yes, he said he is not going to change. You need to adapt to him. And to the employee number two that he berated, he said the same thing. He is never going to change. You need to learn to adapt to him. Uh, and then that alone just opened up my eyes to the whole three years I'd worked with this guy. And, you know, all the times that he's, you know, made a mistake and never owned it. Um, every time he has made this mistake, he's found somebody to be the scapegoat. He's created a story to cover it up. And I thought, wow, that's been there the whole time. And then we started sharing notes with my team. Like, well, I was told this. Well, he told us this. I'm like, wait a second. That's not what I heard. And, and so we just started uncovering all the, all the lies over the course of three years. And, and so my wife, just at the end of the weekend, she was like, look, you just need to quit that job. It is tearing you up. It is getting you nowhere. You could try to talk to that guy, but he's made it clear in three years' time, he is not changing. And if it comes down to him feeling he needs to exert dominance, he has just shown he will. Because he didn't just exert dominance over employee number two. He exerted dominance over me by saying, I don't trust you enough, Jerry, to be a leader and find out from your team what they need to share. So much so that I'm going to bypass you and do it myself and berate the person and put her in her place. I did that with air quotes, guys. Uh, so, Jerry, quit. Professionally, you're not growing. Professionally, you're not going to grow while he's there. On top of that, I don't like the Jerry who comes home at the end of the workday. You come home mad. You come home frustrated. And I hear about your boss for two hours while you diffuse because you've got no one else to talk to. I'd rather have you quit and be happy and figure out what you want to do next than to endure that. And you've said it yourself. You got people holding out on that team because they see you putting on a strong face, putting up with this guy. And they figure if Jerry can do it, then I can too. Well, if you resign on Tuesday, they'll do the thing that they need to do to be free of this as well. And I was like, but I've never been a quitter. And I've, I work in a field where my job is to fix this kind of interpersonal dynamic. And she's like, just think about it, Jerry. You're not dealing with a normal-minded person. 
And when she said that, the, the word narcissism just popped in my head. And I was like, okay, I'm no psychologist, but let me look this up. So I, I looked it up and it, like everything he was doing was narcissism. And I thought, oh, shoot, if that's what I'm dealing with, it's not a quit, a, an easy I quit, I'm out of here. Like there's a fight on the way out. And, and sure enough, I was like, okay, how do you, how do you resign when your boss is a narcissist? I had to Google that. I had to look that up on HR um, forums and like professional magazines. Like, what do you do when your, your supervisor is a narcissist? You can't just engage in an argument with them because they'll just keep the conversation going until they wear you down and you just take the blame for it anyway. And so what I learned was all you can do is just professionally say, thank you for the opportunity. At this point in my career, I need to go. You know, you know that's paraphrased. And when they ask why, you know, say that you just realized for yourself that it. How how was it? It was put. It was essentially like don't tell that leader all the things that they did wrong, because they'll just get defensive and they'll vilify you. Just say simply, it, it was very clear in our conversation that you have some expectations, and I realized. I will not be able to meet those expectations. And, and so going in like that, I was like, okay, that's the battle I've got to face. But I already know the stage is set for a he said, he said type of thing. So before I turned in my resignation that first day, I went to HR first just to fill them in. Like, I want to resign. Here's some stuff you should know about first. And that helps save us for the next 30 days. And I really, I appreciate your, you know, your understanding that, you know, I, uh, reinforced by your research, but your understanding that th- my supervisor is a narcissist, so I can't go in there and offer him constructive yeah. feedback about why I'm quitting because he's just not going to take it. So the best thing for me to do, it's, it's, it's not quite the same as I'm just going to shut up and put up. It's much more along the lines of just pick your battles. He's not going to listen, so I'm not going to offer the information. Yeah. Because it's just simply not going to be helpful. And that's very different from the, I'm not going to have the conversation because I'm afraid to have the conversation or I don't want to have the conversation or I'm afraid of its impact on me. It's a very different, it's, um, Russell, you often talk about this in our workshops, that you either need to decide to have the conversation or you need to decide to put up with the situation as it is. And it sounds like Jerry really decided that the constructive well, conversation is going to be about this intentionality. And like, you know, uh, in that example, as you say, Ken, you know, people decide either the situation is, you know, serious enough, I need to have the conversation or it's not serious enough, in which case don't, you know, stop. You're not going to have the conversation, but stop bitching about it. And I think it's like a bit of a third option that you've identified here for us, Jerry, where, you know, actually having the conversation is not going to address the situation because of the the personality of the individual that you're dealing with. And sort of not just for your own sanity, I suppose, but also for the you know, the lead, leading the people that that work for you, that you just, I think you were saying your wife's saying that because you just staying there, they're staying there because you'll stay there. And so when you make the decision to say, well, you're not quitting, it reminded me actually of um, when you were saying that of Oliver Smith's comment, you know, the, the Marine Corps general, when he was asked about that, are they retreating? He said, gentlemen, we're not retreating. We're advancing in a different direction or words to that effect. Yeah. And I sort of got that in mind. It's like, actually, the jury's not quitting. It's basically, we're going, we're leaving this here and we're going off and doing something else and taking his you know, folks and saying, that's it. We're, we're out of here. We're not playing your games anymore. We're not going to let people, you're not going to manipulate me. You're not going to manipulate my team and treat us in a way that is not acceptable. So see you later. Thank you for the opportunity. And I, at this stage in my career, I'm going off to do something else and, uh, and leaving him there. So I, don't, I, I didn't see that at all as when I was listening to it as, as you quitting. I think it was a case of you making that intentional. We're not standing for this anymore. I think you also, Jerry, did something very wise in there was that you went to HR first and said, in five minutes, I'm going to be quitting. And here are some things you need to know first. So that your the the conversation you were having with HR wasn't couldn't be perceived as a reaction to any ill treatment from the VP or a reaction to anything the VP might then turn around and say, you're being fired. You know, I fired Jerry. Um, instead, you were able to go in and kind of set the groundwork with HR and be able to say your piece so that they can make the choice to act. 
I'm curious about, and I, I recognize that we do need to wrap up the conversation shortly, but I am curious about what happened mm-hmm. with the rest of the team after um, you left. So there were, there were four of us all together and, um, I was, you know, the first one to go, obviously, <laughs> uh, but employee number two, the one who got berated, uh, had also uh, officially tendered a resignation, uh, and she was probably the one who needed protected the most. He he took on the stance that she misunderstood his intent of the conversation, and she's overreacting, and, and tried to play it off as it was a language barrier. She misunderstood. She didn't get it. But again, going back to that, it's never his fault. It was hers. Uh, so I spent the the last of my thirty days because as as a leader, I was required to give a thirty day notice, not a two week notice. Um, but I spent those 30 days um, kind of intervening between him trying to um, weaponize HR against her, uh, trying to create this idea that she was deleting files and she wasn't. Uh, she eventually left the organization. She's been picked up by another organization and gets paid double what we were paying her, doing the actual work she was already doing. Uh, the other strategist, she stayed a little bit longer, but she was already looking for a job. Uh, and she had asked me, can, can you at least do this in such a way that I'm not the target after you and the other employee leave? And so we had to navigate the waters just right so she could stick around. She got picked up by somebody else, and I think she got a 60% pay increase. Uh, she's doing the job that she wanted to do from day one. Uh, the last person on my team um, is still there. And, uh, you know, but some things, you know, seeing three people leave, actually four in the, in, the matter of six months uh, was a big eye opener. So, um, from what I understand, she's getting the recognition she's due, and so she's gotten a title that shows that she's actually growing in her career. She's getting opportunities to actually do what she does best. Uh, she's being trusted more, and uh, yeah. So, yeah, two folks actually. Even the first person who left it back in the earlier part of last year, uh, she's already doubled her income and, and onto the third job. So like we're all in high demand. And so it was great to see like people leave my team and get paid what they're worth, uh, for the value they bring to the organization. Uh, and the, the last person of the team recognize being recognized for what she's bringing to the team. And then I, myself, um, my wife and I did, decided I'll take the rest of that year off, which I did. Uh, I was going to publish a book, which is going to come out pretty soon. And I launched my own company, BTR Impact. And uh, so, yeah, I just took that time to heal, regroup, decide what I wanted to do next. And, and it just hit me. You know, there are a lot of organizations out there that need to really embrace servant leadership, especially at a time when people are quitting the workforce, choosing what they want to do. And it's a very competitive job market. It's probably going to be for the next decade or two. So uh, that's what wound up happening with everybody. But Jerry, thanks for the epilogue there in the uh, the end of that story to know just kind of where everybody went off. I had the vision of those th- the the text that comes up at the end of the film saying, you know, what happened to all the characters that you've seen in the in the in the moments after the film ended. Some kind of eighties been playing in the background. Yeah, that's great. It's really great to hear that. I mean, you know, and I think that's also important for our listeners to recognize that because when you're in a toxic workplace, it really can feel that you're trapped. Yeah, and when you're being gaslit by a um, a, a leader, it, you can really begin to question your own self worth. Is it really me? And so to hear from these individuals that after they left, they all landed in a better place, and I judge a better place not just by the monetary increase that you cited, but by the by the more fulfilling job roles that they're taking on. I think that's uh, uh, both of those two things are important. Um, it's kind of goes back to what you said earlier about, um, it's, uh, it's money and mail and the, um, and the other, and meals, meals that, they, yeah. that they get in their workplace. Right. Um, so thank you very much for sharing that. I also want to take a moment to thank you because I don't think our listeners caught, I don't think we communicated to our listeners that these events were relatively recent. Yeah. Like they have happened to you within the past year. And so this is very fresh for you and that makes it emotionally charged for you. Um, and so I really appreciate you sharing that story um, with us when it can be so uh, difficult and tender for you to share. And the third point that I want to thank you for, Jerry, was the great detail that you provided. 
Um, we, you know, we, in a, our interviews, when people share the story, it really runs the gamut between detail and kind of high level view. One of the gifts you've given us by walking us through this story is you, we can really see the gaslighting taking place at each step. And one of the challenges with gas lighting incidents is that you, it really does, it's really in the details. You know, it's, everything seems to be okay on the surface, but it's once you start digging down into the details that you start to notice these inconsistencies. And I don't think your story would have landed with our listeners in the same way if it hadn't been for all of the detail description that you were able to provide. So thanks for that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was it was just that weird aha for me that, oh, holy cow, this is happening. And I didn't show this earlier, but I used to be a community educator for a battered women's shelter. So it was like, wait, I know this information. I know what this looks like. How have I been the one to go through it and my team to go through it? So um, very, very important to share that de- you know, s- sense of detail for everybody. Okay, well, thank you so much for doing that, Jerry. I'm sure our listeners will get as much out of this as we have um, listening to you. Um, uh, please, when we go off air, don't uh, shoot off. We'll grab details of your upcoming book so we can put it into the show notes because our, uh, our listeners will know that will be interesting in checking that out and also the website for your company. So that wraps up this episode. We hope you enjoyed it, everybody. Remember to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Share the link with your friends and colleagues, and you can always reach out to us at the email address in the show notes. Goodbye for now, and we will effing talk to you soon. Goodbye, everyone. Take care, everybody.